Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. And um, this morning, I have the honor of starting our new sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is considered to be one of the most comprehensive series of teachings by Jesus himself. And what we're going to unfold for essentially the next few months is these three chapters unfolding the teachings of Jesus and what he's really trying to say in light of who he is, uh, in light of what he has called us to do, and what it means to really live in light of the kingdom that he is proclaiming. So if you guys have your Bibles with me, or you guys can turn to page 8 in your programs, I'm going to be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And specifically, I'm going to today just focus on verses 1 through 6. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who are before you. This is the word of God. Now, I've been uh, doing bivocational ministry uh, for uh, the past five years or so. And uh, one thing I've learned in, in the workplace specifically is that there are always a, a lot of changes that go on, and specifically it's with uh, uh, team leadership. Uh, you know, let it be the team leaders, uh, managers, and even the ones higher above, they come and go year after year. But what I've noticed is that what happens when someone new comes on board and takes over, it's never just a person that's new. Often, when there is a new leader, when there's a new manager, when there's some new uh, upper above that come on board, there also includes new strategy, new goals, new methods. And what happens is that it often shakes up the things of the old. In other words, the new leader arrives with new plans for the sake of improving the company, how it's ran, the team dynamics, even though it might disrupt the behaviors, the patterns, and the workflow of the old. See, in the same way, when we come to Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount, his teachings, he comes down to essentially shake up and disrupt, if you will, the kingdom of man and the things of this world as he presents that the kingdom of God is near. And as he proclaims on the Sermon on the Mount, he makes it very clear that it must first and foremost begin with him and that there is nothing you and I can do to enter the kingdom of God that is near. For only God himself can give 
you access, meaning this for you and I. It has nothing to do with our works. It has nothing to do with our status, our success, and any good deed. Access is strictly given by Jesus, his righteousness, and it is the only way you and I have access to the kingdom. So for this morning, I have three points as we talk about our access to the kingdom. Three points this morning is first, that there is an invitation. Secondly, access is marked by blessing. And finally, access to the kingdom is promised. It is an invitation, it is a blessing, and a promise. First point, invitation. Look at verse 1 and 2 with me. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. And I want us to just stop and highlight this for just a little bit, because we notice that Jesus, he sees the crowds. Now, the crowds that Matthew is referring to, you could find in chapter 4, verse 20 through 25, where we see Jesus at the height of his popularity. At the same time, what verse 1 also tells us is that including the crowds is the disciples, his ones that were committed to his teaching. So what do we see? Very simply, is that Jesus, his audience was very wide. It was not only for the disciples, but it was also for the crowds. It was for his followers and his unfollowers. It was essentially an open invitation in the same way if you are in this room right now. I just want to let you know that we are all in need of this word. If you are a believer in this room and you proclaim the name of Jesus and you proclaim the gospel that is true for your life right now, well, you need this word. If you are in this room right now and you're a skeptic and you're not even sure why you are here and how you actually got here, well, I just want to let you know that we're so glad that you are here and this word is for you. It's an open invitation. And Jesus openly invites. And I want us to consider Jesus right now in light of his mission. He could have just focused on the disciples and the trainings and just kind of be within a small room. But what do we see? No, he goes on the mountaintop, meaning he was intentional in his mission, yet perfectly interwoven with his compassion. Not only did he pursue, but he also proclaimed. What is he proclaiming? He's proclaiming this, that there is a kingdom far greater, that there is a kingdom far more superior, far more infinite than the kingdoms that you and I build for ourselves. That this kingdom and the kingdoms of this world is far less than the kingdoms of God. That the kingdom of God is far greater than any worldly desire, is far greater than any emotion a person can feel, is far greater than any status that your job can offer. Jesus is simply proclaiming that his kingdom is greater. That Jesus... He's not coming as just a moral teacher, 
but he is coming as a king. And as a king, he makes it clear that he is teaching about his kingdom. Simply highlighting in verse 1, was that Matthew, he includes this detail about the mountainside. And this is a highlight that we should all just kind of focus on. Uh, Christian pastor Tim Keller, he illustrates this to us about the mountains. And that the mountainside actually had a function uh, uh, that was very common for many centuries. See, basically, whenever a, a revolutionary, he, he wanted to bring a new administration he would basically be hunted. So what would happen is, is he would have to go and hide in the mountainside, right? It was a common thing for revolutionaries. That if they wanted to bring a new administration, they actually had to go to the mountains to hide. But what we see in light of King Jesus is that he is not hiding when he goes to the mountaintops. But when he goes to the mountaintops, he's being bold. He's bringing something brand new. And when he's going on to the mountaintops, he is not in light of fear, but he's proclaiming of a brand new administration. In other words, Jesus, when he delivers this sermon... It is to bring a new kingdom, and that is radically different against anything that they have ever heard during a time of religiosity. What does this tell us about this message? Simply, to interpret the Sermon of the Mount legalistically as just a set of rules, you're kind of missing the point. Now, is the Sermon on the Mount something that we should follow in light of guideline in terms of conviction and character? Absolutely. But when you just present a sermon on the mount simply as a, a moral, uh, a legalistic uh, standard, then you kind of got the point of the sermon on the mount all wrong. See, the teachings, the sermon on the mount is, was a radical demand from Jesus on all who respond to the preaching of his gospel. If I can say it this way, simply, there's a sermon on the mount is not just about virtues, but rather it's all about values. And the point is this. Not only is this an open invitation, but it is an open invitation to a whole new way of life. And I just want us to consider this if you are a believer in this room right now. And why we do church and why we do ministry and why we missionally engage with our community, universities, and the workplace. That when you are missionally engaged with the people that surround you, remember this, that you are opening and you are inviting them to know God and to know that in him that there is new life. Jesus Christ, he didn't come on the mountainside to bring a list of morals to follow, but he came to challenge your love for the temporary kingdoms of this world. And simply the question I have for us this morning is how do you view the Christian faith? Is it just a moral standard for righteous living? Or do you believe that it is a life being transformed by the teachings of Scripture? And if you are here right now and you're saying that I'm beaten and I'm broken and I'm lacking hope, just look at Jesus. His arms are open wide. 
Consider his promise an everlasting hope that nothing in this world can ever take, and he openly invites you. All of your disappointments, all of your fears, and all of your failures in this big kingdom of God, knowing that there is purpose in what you are going through, and that in the promises of God, it is for your good and for his glory, and you are all invited. This leads us to our second point, that the access to the kingdom of God that we are all invited to is essentially marked by blessing. Read verse 3 through 5 with me. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, starting in verse 3 is what Scripture calls the Beatitudes. Uh, They are called Beatitudes from the Latin word beatus, meaning blessed. It means happy, which is why the Beatitudes, it begins with blessed are. And if verse 1 and 2 tells us about this invitation to the kingdom, the Beatitudes tells us of what life will entail when we accept this invitation. And essentially, it says that you are are blessed. It's a blessing. But I want us to kind of consider this blessing because it's not what many may assume. See, when we talk about blessing, it's not an invitation and a blessing to what the world seems as blessing. When I talk about blessing and what scripture talks about as blessing, it's not I'm blessed I have more financial uh, A, B, and C, but what does he say in verse 3? It says that you are actually poor in spirit. It's not an invitation and a blessing to be more happy, but in verse 4 he says to be in mourning. It's not an invitation and a blessing to do whatever you want, but to be meek and gentle. See, to be blessed in light of the kingdom is more than a circumstantial feeling of happiness. To be blessed is a state of peace and relationship with Christ through any circumstance. And as Christians, if you are a believer in this room, I think we really need to be careful in our understanding of what we mean by blessed. Because often we place blessing to what the world views as blessing and not what Scripture views as blessing. How many times do we get caught up in the world? I know if I'm slipping just a little bit, I define blessing as those worldly standards of blessing. You and I, we all say very similar things about blessing, do we not? I'm blessed because of my salary raise. I'm blessed because of my brand new house. I'm blessed because I'm filled with kids and I got my fourth kid and I'm going on my 14th one, right? That is not a blessing, I know. That's called bad behavior. (laughs) They are blessings. (laughs) But when Jesus says you are blessed, he's referring to something much more profound, and it's going against what the world defines as blessed. In other words, correlating godly blessing to worldly values is simply an injustice to the gospel. It creates a false pretense of the kingdom and is often a result of bad theology and a misuse of scripture. 
See, in Scripture, to say that you are blessed is saying that you are favored by God and it's not based on a temporary pleasure of the world. Rather, it is based on the hope of a promised blessing you can only find in the kingdom. See, access to the kingdom is marked by godly blessing. But then we go back to the verse, what does it mean to be blessed? This is not of these worldly standards. What does it mean to be blessed? Verse 3 through 5, let's read it again. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek. Let's break this down for just a little bit. First, we talk about blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, in the Old Testament, whenever you see poor in spirit, it's an allusion to those who trust in God, even though their loyalty results in oppression and material disadvantage. See, to be poor in spirit is to simply acknowledge that you are spiritually bankrupt, that you are confessing that even at your best, that it's actually the worst, that all of the resources that you think that you have, all the talents that you think you can use, all the giftings that you think you can have to offer, actually has no value in light of the kingdom. Being poor in spirit is to simply admit that your problems are far beyond anything and everything that you can do. See, it's contrary to what we see in society. Because in society, if you think about it, to enter into anything really, really nice, what do you have to do? You need to have the flyest gear on, you need to be the most fashionable, and you best have to remember that you have to have the most amount of money to spend. It's funny because you come in full, but you actually leave very empty. But in the kingdom, you come in empty and you remain very full. See, to be poor in spirit, the emphasis is our dependence on godly desire rather than depending on material poverty. To have access to the kingdom is to declare that you are poor in spirit, that you are spiritually bankrupt. What does that lay out and practically play out for us right now? It's repentance. It's acknowledging and realizing that your sin is bigger than you are, and that sin is against God and God only, which we find in Psalm 51. And it's saying that I have nothing to offer you but a broken heart that is in need of grace and redemption. I am poor in spirit. I have nothing. I am empty. So I need someone to deposit goodness, faithfulness, and kindness onto me because I cannot do it on my own. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Secondly, what is a blessing for us? What does a blessed life look like? That blessed are those who mourn. See, we can't just acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy with a cold heart. Spiritual bankruptcy should also place us in a sense of mourning. I mean, I don't know if I'm the only one, but I know when I look at my bank account, I am in mourning. <laughs> and I don't know if I'm the only one. But... When you see this, it means to look at your brokenness that surrounds you and the brokenness within you. 
That when we say we are in mourning, we're actually mourning about our sin. We're mourning about our suffering. We are mourning when we are seeing the sins that are within other people, and we are mourning when we see the circumstances impacting other people. And this is also very contradictory to the world, because if you think about what the world says in light of mourning, it's to actually go against this understanding of mourning. In light of the world, it's all about being the happiest that you can be. It's all about being the most fulfilled that you can be, even if that means ignoring the realities that are surrounding us. Uh, David Paulison is a, a well-known biblical counselor, and he talks about this in light of mourning. He says, the person that doesn't mourn is the one that often always wears rose-tinted glasses. That people that live this way, right, they will just have rose-tinted glasses and they pretend that everything is perfect and they will just seek a material poverty. They will just seek the riches of the world and just often ignore the realities of sin and suffering that are around them. And we actually also see that in light of those rose-tinted glasses, they're actually the ones that are probably the most misguided and the most blind. See, the one who mourns is the one who acknowledges sin and suffering. So blessed are you in this room right now if you can acknowledge the sin and suffering that is within you, that is surrounding you, and it makes you weep. It makes you mourn. It makes you hunger for more, for there is something much greater. Thirdly, what do we see? Blessed are the meek. The meek are the gentle. Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. When we talk about being meek, it means to be gentle. It means to not, you're not going to assert yourself over someone else because of your own agenda. And going to be based on your own strength. To be meek is simply to say that you're going to submit your desires to God because you know that your desires are sinfully uncontrollable. See, when you say that you are uh, uh, meek, you are saying that uh, I'm going to submit my desires, I'm going to submit my hope, I'm going to submit my anger, I'm going to submit my over-pursuits, I'm going to submit them to you. And I'm going to let you control me. I'm going to let the truth of the gospel navigate where I'm called to go rather than over desire. Um, In John Steinbeck's book of Mice and Men, what do we see? One of the main characters, we see Lenny. He's this giant of a man. He's strong, but uh, we also know that there's a mild mental disability. And in light of who he is, he doesn't know his own strength. So what happens throughout the book is that he unintentionally kills a mouse. Uh, then uh, there's a puppy, but you know, in, 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 towards the, the main point and the, the, the climax of this book, we see that um, he would fatally uh, kill a woman. And what we see, right, that the problem, it wasn't necessarily his strength, but it was his ability to control his strength. To be meek is simply to say is that I can't control my desire. God, I need you to tame me. I, 
I need to have this level of meekness to submit who I am to you in light of your purpose, that you're guiding me, that you're leading the way, and I'm not going to overly pursue because of what I desire the most. Poor in spirit and mourning and meekness. Now, the question is, why are these blessings? See, these blessings are far greater because it's the values of the kingdom that is shaping your character rather than the values of the world that often showcase your competency. And the question for us this morning is, what do you truly desire? Character in light of the conviction that you proclaim or a competency that you value based on what the world has to offer. This leads us to our final point, that access is promised. Look at verse 6 with me. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, when you look at the Beatitudes in verse 3 and 5, what we see is kind of like a putting off, right? If you go back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17 through 24, it talks about you're putting off the old and you're putting on the new. When you see the Beatitudes in verse 3 and 5, you can kind of say that there's kind of like a putting off, right? But what we see in verse 6 is there is a putting on, right? So looking at verse 3 to 5, it's saying I'm admitting that I'm poor, I'm admitting that I'm in mourning, and I'm admitting that I need to be more meek, but here in verse 6, it says, I'm now going to put on, I'm going to apply something new, and that is a hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, what do we mean by hunger and thirst? Essentially, it expresses a desire. Psalm 42, verse 2 says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet him? Now, I know today that's kind of hard to really experience, especially, you know, for all of us right now, especially being in the city of Philadelphia. We don't often go very hungry, right? I know even though right now you're probably not paying attention to me and you're wondering what's going to be for lunch after this, right? We're not often in positions where we find ourselves hungry and thirsty. But you ever been in that case ever been in that scenario where you're just so hungry and you are so thirsty? What happens is that in many ways is that your desires become almost uncontrollable. See, in the same way, when you are in places of blessing, the putting off, it should create an intimate desire of putting on, and that is righteousness. So that we would hunger for righteousness simply to say that there is a desire to be accepted. So verse 6 does pose the question, do you hunger and thirst for the most righteous who gave up his righteousness for our behalf? See, in the Gospel of John, the one that causes people to hunger and thirst, Jesus Christ, for righteousness, we see that he would also thirst on the cross as well. John chapter 19, verse 28 through 30, hear his words. Later, knowing that everything that had been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received a drink, Jesus said, it is finished. 
See, what we see with the person and the work of Jesus Christ, that on the cross, Jesus was the most poor in spirit, for he gave up his eternal riches on the cross as he fully gave up his spirit. He declares, unto your hands I commit my spirit. On the cross, Jesus mourned the most as he experienced the ultimate suffering, separation from God the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus was the most meek. He was the most humble, the most gentle as he absorbed the very wrath of God so that you and I don't have to bear the eternal punishment and wrath that we deserved. That for the scriptures to be fulfilled, he said that he was thirsty right before he declares, it is finished. Consider Jesus on the cross and that he was the most blessed as he is now with God the Father, and that in him, in light of what we are going through, in light of our sin and our suffering, in light of our brokenness, in light of the circumstance that you are right now, I know it is hard to say right now. I know many of us in this room right now, in light of our suffering, in light of our darkness, in light of our uncertainty, in light of I don't know what tomorrow is going to look like, you are blessed. Consider Jesus on the cross. Be melted that because he was the most poor in spirit, you and I gain the most eternal riches. In his mourning, we now can have everlasting joy. In his meekness, you and I can be confident in light of any circumstance because he tells us that he was forsaken so that we would not, and that he was forsaken so that we would be forgiven. So how does that play for us today? Very simply, in light of following Jesus and hearing his words on the Sermon on the Mount, Remember that you are blessed and that in light of a blessing, remember to practice to be poor in spirit, come in sin, be honest about your suffering, and you can come in repentance, knowing that God is hearing you and knowing that God is working in your brokenness and in your repentance to really practice what it means to be mourning in mourning, to be honest about your suffering and the suffering that is surrounding you, but you know that it is not in vain and that God is working in it. And to be meek, to submit your desires to the sovereign God, for you know that your desires are uncontrollable. But when in him and you place it on him and you trust in him that God will work in it. He'll call you out if he has to, if it's really in sin. See, today our lives are constantly filled with the desires wanting to be accepted. The thing about acceptance is that it requires you to carry the most and greatest amount of credentials. 
But you come to realize that even in light of that acceptance, it will leave you and end you with nothing. And if this is what you right now, this is what you have experienced, I want us to consider one thing, and that's to consider the kingdom. Consider a place where because of Christ, you are already accepted, and it requires you to carry nothing but your cross. And at the end, you are left actually with everything that you ever needed. Would you join me in prayer?